Welcome to the Revolution Church Podcast. Before we begin, we'd like to remind you that our ministry is supported 100% by listeners like you. To make your 100% tax-deductible donation today, please visit revolutionchurch.com donate. You can also learn more by clicking the donate section on the website. Well, hello everyone. Welcome to Revolution. It's Sunday. And we're spilling our breakfasts. Um, good group of folks. It is strange as we're missing a, a core group because they're at Pride today. So, got folks marching, which next year I'd like to do a booth at Pride because Pride just kind of c- creeps up on me every year. And uh, hopefully by next year we have more people volunteering to remind my absent-mindedness of that because that would be a good thing to do. One year we we drove uh, in Atlanta, Revolution got a float, but we didn't have a float, so we just used my truck and put a giant banner on the side that says, as Christians, well, we had it made. We went to Kinko's and had it made. It was a, it was a sticker. As Christians, we're sorry for being self-righteous, arrogant bastards. Yeah. Most people liked that. There's a few church people who did not like that that I got emails from. But besides that, and, uh, but I didn't have one for the other side, and so you want to have both sides of the, so then I had to, I made a just, you know the equal opportunity housing loans? It's the house with the equal sign. So I just did that, and I drew a steeple on top of it. So that's what I did. It's called do-it-yourself float-making. <laughs> um, today, I'm going to be talking on Luke 7, uh, 36, 47, and it's one that I don't usually talk about. Um, a sermon I have not really... Scripture I haven't talked about, but I've been reading some of, believe it or not, Paul Tillich, um, but his sermons, and one of the reasons I've been reading Tillich's sermons, uh, along with other books, but it's because I've had a bit of a crisis of faith, and uh, it's not always easy when you're a preacher and you're going do I believe this, or don't I believe this, or, you know, is this real, or was this something that was handed down to me by my family or by America, and, you know, things like that. And so, yeah, I just, I feel like I have to share that with folks, because otherwise it's not, I just don't feel like I can do it. I don't feel like you should set people up for failure. (laughs) And if I sit here and go like, yes, everything's fantastic, and I've been doing great my whole life, which no, one, no everyone who follows Revolution knows that's not true. But I think it's important to be transparent and share your struggles and uh, doubts and hopes with one another. And so that's what we do uh, here. And uh, hopefully we'll continue to do. So, do I start? I've got a lot of side notes that I was thinking about today, but maybe we'll have side notes, maybe we won't. I almost just started reading, doing the sermon from last week's notes, so that would have been really interesting. 
Um, this Tillich book I'm reading from is called The New Being, and you can tell it's a recent release from 1960s. <laughs> the used price is actually more than the than the, <laughs> the actual first new price. It was a dollar twenty-five back when you could buy books for a dollar twenty-five. Paul Tillich is uh, one of the 20th century's greatest theologians slash philosophers, uh, German guy. So was kicked out of Germany by the Nazis. So always good to be kicked out by the Nazis. A little background on Paul Tillich. But let's start with the, the scripture. We're in uh, Luke 7, 36, 47. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house, it's talking about Jesus, and sat at the table, and behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, oh my goodness, when she learned that he was sitting at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisees, who had invited him, saw it, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. I think it's interesting that someone wrote down the guy's inner thoughts. Um, That's always odd. No, but he answers it. And I like when Jesus does this. Um, Jesus does this a lot because he's often eating with the wrong people or associating with the wrong people. But this time, he's associating and sitting with Pharisees. So Jesus was always willing to sit and dine with anyone, which was to build a covenant. And that meant, meant to be, when, when you were in Jewish tradition, it was to build a covenant with one another. And it says, you are my people, these are my people, when you shared a meal together. It was a life-bonding experience. It wasn't just like growing down the street and grabbing a bite to eat with somebody. It really meant something. And uh, so even though this Pharisee is being judgy-judgy, it's also good to see that he is uh, asked Jesus to dine with him. So that's a, a pretty big thing. So it's always good to look at different uh, different aspects of how it goes. Hello, and um, and Jesus. Oh, and Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, What is it, teacher? A certain creditor had two debtors. One owed five hundred denarii, and the other fifty. When they could not pay, he forgave them both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one I suppose to whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You have given me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Now, this is 
quite a, a neat story, quite an amazing story, because um, if you get kind of the the paradigm here, or the or even I wrote down, uh, almost seems like a conundrum of weirdness. Um, as he goes, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, and for she loved me much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. So do you see what the odd thing is here is that there's like those who have a lot of sin and are forgiven love a lot more than those who have a little and are forgiven little. You see, it's like, so does Jesus want people to go sin and do all these, you know, does he want us to live in a life of sin so we're forgiven much or forgiven more? I, I don't think necessarily that is it, but there's something happening. There's a shift happening here in faith and in this religion and in the way things are seen that's, that's, uh, that Jesus is bringing a change. Jesus is bringing a huge shift to the world, and we'll see that. Now, I'm going to read some of the commentary uh, and, and try to riff on that a little bit off of Tillich's commentary. Um, but let's look at forgiveness for a second. One, he's saying it's the forgiveness she received that has created the love. Um, Tillich uh, sees forgiveness as reconciliation in spite of estrangement. So there's another kind of, what is that? Reconciliation and estrangement together. But it's reconciliation in spite of estrangement. That's what forgiveness is. And so that's amazing. Another just amazing thing, which we could just say, Let's ponder on that, and we'll be done. Reconciliation in spite of estrangement. But that's what Jesus does. Now, this forgiveness, I don't want to go too fast, because I'll, I'll end up just getting to the point and then not having anything to talk about. So let's look at, um, since you're all following along with me in your books, <laughs> in your new beans, um, that's a great thing about people not reading a lot of Paul Tillich is I could have actually just pretended like this was my sermon, which, okay, for about 10 seconds I thought about. And 10 seconds is pretty long. 1,000, 2, 1,000, 3, 1,000, you know, I was like, hmm. But I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go ahead and share the credit with Mr. Uh, Paul Tillich. In the traditional Christian view, the Pharisees have become representatives of everything evil, you know, people think of Pharisees and they think of bad. But in their time, they were the pious and morally zealous ones. The conflict with Jesus was not simply a conflict between right and wrong. Now, this is so important for us to remember. And uh, this is why I'm, I, I don't think I could make it as, this clear. Maybe I could have, but I just want this to stick in our mind, is that we... Often Christians simplify things so much that they boil things down to good and bad and right and wrong. And, you know, it's like I talk about my son who's, oh, hell, he's almost almost two years old. and uh, But sometimes he talks like a caveman, you know. And he's like, and Karen's at this point where she's going, use your words. And I'm like, honey, that's adorable. But even if he uses his words, it's still like caveman words, you know. It's like, want that football, football, football. Um, what was he saying today? Oh, he says the craziest stuff. 
Um, you know, or he'll just say, Bluey, where's Bluey? Now, Bluey is the blanket that he likes, but, you know, we had to wash. Oh, he was saying Whitman, which is one of our congregation members' sons today. He's going, Whitman, Whitman. He's calling out somebody's name in the middle of dinner or breakfast. Whitman. And uh, it's cute as all get out. Don't get me wrong. But um, why was I saying that? Oh, I don't know. Well, because we simplify things as kids, you know, and, 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 and we make things s- simple and, uh, and it's cute to see, but as, as, you know, as people who have a faith or want a more mature faith, it's, we don't, can't simplify everything and, uh, into good and bad. And uh, one of the things Milo does is, you know, he, he's got stuff that he likes and stuff that he thinks is gross and he goes, ew, but he kind of likes the stuff that he thinks is gross because he really enjoys going, ew, you know. Um, because he thinks my grass shoes are ooh, that my mowing the lawn shoes, but um, and it's it's a simple word for him, and it's great. And so, why am I saying all this? It's because that's how we are often are. We have our ooh, and then we have what you know we, we like, and it's not that simple. So this conflict with Jesus was not simple conflict between right and wrong. It was above all the conflict between an old and sacred tradition and a new reality, which was breaking into it and and, uh, depriving it of ultimate significance. So all of a sudden you have this new reality that's coming into you know. And remember, the Pharisees, Tillich says here, the Pharisees, and this we should not forget, were the guardians of the law of God in their time. So, and they were also seen as radical, but they kept the law. But this is who Jesus is having conflict with, were the people who had been following him or following his father, following God all this time. So these aren't just bad guys. This is that there's a new reality. You know? And this isn't anti-Semitism, because Jesus is Jewish. Jesus is very Jewish. You know? And we often forget that. Um, Some people blame the Apostle Paul, really, for bringing in anti-Semitism, but... Apostle Paul was also Jewish and, and very Jewish. So what happened was is just some people saw some European drawings and thought, well, Jesus doesn't look Jewish. <laughs> I don't know how that happened. I remember I was watching this, uh, the what is this? Oz, that prison show, and the skinheads are reading the Bible, and the guy goes, you know Jesus is Jewish, right? And he flips through the Bible and he goes, look at this picture. And it's like a kid's Bible. He's like, does he look Jewish to you? You got to love it. Simplicity. Um, so we have the old tradition, the old sacred tradition and this new tradition. And Jesus is breaking that reality. And that reality, is, is it's a new reality. Um, Jesus also said, when he would talk about the law, he would say, you know, the law says an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, you know. But I say, love your enemies and do good to those who persecute you. Jesus changed things, you know. Um, another movie reference I think about is Batman, when the Joker comes to Batman. And he goes, you've changed things. Things are different now, you know. And uh, that's what Jesus has done. He's changed things. Uh, 
Um, and this is a very clear moment of something that's changed. Those who are for, forgiven little love little, but those who are forgiven much love a lot. There's also another verse in the Bible that says, you know, who much is given, much is required, you know. And I've always thought about having received much, feeling like grace is such a huge thing that I've always been somewhat required, not that I would get in trouble or not, but just required to love more and to give more grace. And um, even when I'm given doubt, uh, it's that honesty to be able to deal with the doubt and, 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 and talk to other people about it and be clear about it and share that. Um, forgiveness, too, is an interesting thing about because forgiveness, when accepted, leads to transformation. And in the Bible, there's a word for transformation that's repent. And people often think that the, it's, it comes in a, like you ask for, you repent and then you get forgiven. But really what it is is forgiveness and repentance are kind of like um, kind of like Reese's peanut butter cups. You know, somebody put their peanut butter, chocolate, my peanut butter. Somebody put their peanut butter in my chocolate. You know, who knows who came first? It's just a delicious thing. And repentance and forgiveness are to go hand in hand, you know? So I always thought repentance was like, I need to get down on my hands and knees and beg God for forgiveness. But no, it's a change. It can actually be a literal, like, movement, a turning, but it's a change. And forgiveness and acceptance lead to a transformation. And so why was this woman so transformed? She got something she got, something she had faith in Christ and believed in this idea of forgiveness and love and acceptance, and she was so transformed by it that she could not stop crying, she could not stop kissing his feet. And a lot of this stuff is, 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 would have made more sense in biblical times. Now we would be like, what the heck is going on? Um, but anointed him with oil and showed him grace. And, and the Pharisees were still just like, why would you do this? Why, you know, because they hadn't experienced this grace yet and this forgiveness yet. They were still trying to keep up with a works-based faith, a faith that says, I can do it, I can make God happy, I can please God, I can usher in God, I can do this. And the law doesn't seem to be working. Page 12 says, and Tillich says in, in, in his book, uh, this is a sermon. I'm actually reading from one of his sermons. He who accepts ultimately can also accept himself. Uh, one of the things that drives me crazy about old books, side note, uh, especially spiritual ones in the 60s, is all the all the he's, you know? <laughs> all the pronouns are like him, he, her, you know. So forgive me for all the male pronouns today, but they're just everywhere in this book. Um, he who accepts ultimately can also accept himself. Being forgiven and being able to accept oneself are one and the same thing. Do you hear that? Being forgiven and being able to accept oneself are one and the same thing. No one can accept themselves who does not feel that he is accepted by the power of acceptance, which is greater than he. Greater than his friends and counselors 
and psychologists, helpers. They may point to a power of acceptance, but it is the function of the minister to do so, but he and others also need the power of acceptance which is greater than they. So to understand, to even communicate this acceptance that's so transformative, that gives, that love is, this, this love that she is, we're talking about the acceptance that she's accepted. One has to accept something and realize that something is accepts them greater than themselves, that they are loved, that they are accepted by something which is greater than themselves, greater than their friends, greater than their psychiatrists, greater than people tell them. And to be honest with you, that's not my problem. One of the things I've learned from the Bible over the years is that I'm accepted. Grace is something that's really beautiful. Even when I'm around religious and legalistic people, and I've had people tell me that the Holy Spirit was against me before, which I thought was really bizarre, that just the Holy, they picked out the Holy Spirit. And, uh, and I was able to say, and I was quoting Brendan Manning, but I was like, no, 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 actually, you know, the Father is quite fond of me. You know, I knew what I was. My problem in my life is accepting others' acceptance. You know, because I, I now don't, what I used to do is I used to, to uh, project my negative thoughts about myself onto God, which a lot of people do. And, and uh, I look at your life and see if you're doing that because it's not a good thing to do. Unfortunately, I just moved the projector down a little bit further and now I project it onto other people and sometimes find myself worth there. And uh, that's not a great place to be either. So we all struggle with ultimately accepting we're accepted. And, um, but you think if we could accept that, that, we're, that, that, accept that we're accepted by that which is greater than ourselves, by the ground of being, uh, by what some of us call God, uh, we could learn to start not relying so much on what other people think. And that's what the woman with the jar is doing. She doesn't care that they know that she's a sinner. She doesn't care that, that they might look down upon her because she's a woman. She doesn't care that she's taking this, you know, take all this oil and pouring it on his feet and kissing this man's feet and tears on the. I mean, she's making a scene, but she doesn't care because she knows she's accepted. She knows that grace is something so much bigger than anything else that she can't hide it. She can't hide the gratefulness. She can't hide the hope that it's given her. She can't hide... Um, I mean, the gratitude. And to me, that's a, it's, it's an uncomfortable and beautiful thing. Tillich goes on to say, in, uh, goes on to say, they are really righteous. He's talking about, about the um, Pharisees. They are really righteous, but since little is forgiven, and this is the, the crux, this is the flying ointment, since little is forgiven of them, they love little. And this is their unrighteousness. Now, this is why I decided to read all this is because I think there is a lot here in, and it's important for us to look at. They're really righteous, okay? So the Pharisees are really righteous. Are you following me so far? Everybody with me? Um, but since little is forgiven, they love little, and this is their unrighteousness. What would you call that? You know, that it, this is like a weird little... What? Oh, yeah, it's a paradox. 
Thank you. That was the word I was hoping would come from above, and it came from a side. <laughs> it is a great paradox. And you keep seeing these paradoxes in the New Testament over and over again. The first shall be last. You know, walk the extra mile, turn the other cheek, love your enemies, do good to those who persecute you. There's such a paradox there. And it's an uncomfortable paradox. And that's why people take Christianity and just want to make it, want to create it in their own image. And we want to make it to make sense. We don't like paradoxes. We like order. And Jesus says, I didn't come to bring order. I've come to shake things up. And there's going to be a paradox. So listen to that paradox. It goes on, it does not lie in the moral level, just as the unrighteousness of Job did not lie in the moral level where his friends sought for it in vain. It lies on the level of encounters with the ultimate reality. So it's saying it's the encounter with God. It goes on to say, with God's vindicates Job, ultimate reality with God vindicates Job, righteousness against the attack of his friends, with the God who defends himself against the attacks of Job and the ultimate unrighteous. I'm like, that doesn't make sense. I'm going to read that. I'm going to read this. They too want forgiveness. I'm talking about the Pharisees. But they believe that they do not need much of it. And so their righteous actions are, war- are warmed by very little love. Now, how many of you have dealt with people who have had a faith or Christians who have been judgmental and been hurtful. And we, if you know, if you go online, okay, just go online, and you'll see that there's Christians who are very judgmental, very hurtful people, but in some ways they're victims of misinformation because they've been told that their right actions are enough. And so they have a different idea of love, but it's kind of a counterfeit love because they don't have room for paradox in their life anymore. They don't have room for this crazy paradox. They don't realize that they need the grace just as much as the other person needs the grace because they need the grace because they're not able to show that kind of love because their lack of love and their lack of compassion is there all fall short. That's where they fall short. They fall short in the area of compassion and mercy. And that is an area that, to me, is reproduces more than any other sin. Legalism. Self-righteousness. It just seems to make it. And people start to pretend that they've got it all together. Because no one has it together, so you have to pretend that you have it together. And then you become righteous. And then you start to talk like you're righteous. And then you don't seem to make sense to normal people. And normal people don't want to be around you because you're so uncomfortable, because you're so judgmental, and you act that you have it together, and your love is not what we want love to be. And obviously, our instincts, when we want what love is, I think our instincts are true to that. We want the love that never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, endures through every circumstance. We want the Corinthians 13, 4 through 7 love. Well, why don't we see it in the church? 
because people don't see the need that everyone needs this grace, that the righteous need it just as much, if not more, than the unrighteous. I hope this paradox makes you uncomfortable because it makes me uncomfortable, but I think it's good because I want, I want it to be in a neat little bow. I want it tied up and with a little package given to me. And Here you go, Jay. It's nice and look, it's comfortable. <laughs> There's no paradoxes here, you know. I remember when I started to realize that there was contradictions in the Bible. Oh, my gosh, I thought this book was supposed to be perfect, you know. But then you realize it's a collection of poems and letters and stories, and they're not all going to go together, but they weren't meant to be that way. It wasn't meant to ever be seen as this, like, whole book. It's a library. It wasn't meant, you know, you don't see a library as one book or you'd go insane, you know. But we look at our library, and we just have, Maybe we should have just made it different books. <laughs> yep, there you go. I'm going to carry those around to church, and you're going to be different books. And it's going to be like the letter of, or the book of, or the poem of, and you know, you're going to read it in context. Why is Rob Bell so crazily successful with this book that he just wrote about what the Bible? It's because people don't know what the Bible is. And he just tells you in the, cell, in the, in the second title, and the, the, just tells it's popular because people don't know what it is. They don't realize it's a collection. They think it's this perfect little book that came down. And uh, he points out that it's not. But he also points out what it is. And knowing what it is, it helps. It helps us deal with some of these paradoxes. As a matter of fact, he talks about it's important for us to look and focus and carry these paradoxes with us when we see them. And I couldn't agree with him more. Um, I'm going to read the paradox again. They, which are the Pharisees, are really righteous, but since little is forgiven, they love little, and this is their unrighteousness. If you want me to make sense of that, I can't because it is a paradox. But I'd say, are we not all longing for for such an experience um, of transformation? You know, uh, needing grace, needing that, um, knowing that even righteousness. You see it in the story of the prodigal son, um, where the one son leaves and spends all his inheritance and then comes back and is like, I've done all this horrible stuff. And then the father goes, no, you're back, and throws a party. You know, but then the other son comes down and is like, you've never thrown a party for me, and I've served you and done all this the whole time, you know, and when the house is symbolically the presence of God. The father represents God. We are the brothers. Um, we should be more like the father, but we're like the brothers, and the older brother goes... The thing is, is he says, come in, come in. Your brother was lost and now is found. He was blind. Now I can see, you know, let's celebrate. Your brother has returned. And you never find out if the righteous brother, the good brother, ever comes back into the presence. I always thought that was interesting. It just leaves with the father telling the older brother, everything I have is yours, which was true. You know, come in. Your brother was lost. But that idea of, I don't even care if it's all mine. I can't accept it if they're accepted. You see? 
That's another thing that's happening here with the Pharisee is going, well, why, how could you accept this woman if you're a prophet? I mean, of course you're going to have dinner with me, but how can you let her touch you if you're really a prophet? And a lot of things Pharisees would be with Jesus at the time. Would go, Why are you eating with those people? Why do you eat with such scum? Is in the New Living, it says. The Pharisees would say to him, and he goes, because healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. I've come to call sinners, not those who think they're good enough. So the sins of the church, the sins of a lot of us is self-righteousness and righteousness and not knowing that we are accepted or that we need acceptance and that we need grace too. Welcome to the paradox. Um, I wrote down the righteous conundrum, but I don't know if that was worth I think paradox is much better. Um, I'm going to read page 14 and uh, all of it, the whole thing. It's the only part of the book. It's the end. But more often, it is because... They seek love, which is rooted in forgiveness. And the righteous ones cannot... uh, I should go back here. Often, certainly, it's because we want to escape judgment. But more often, it is because they seek love, which is rooted in forgiveness. Saying those who like the woman. And this righteousness, and the righteous ones cannot give. Many of those whom turn cannot give it either. Many gave it to the woman who was utterly unacceptable. The church would be more, this is the good part, the church would be more of the church of Christ than it is now, and we're talking 1960 probably when this was written. The church would be more of the church of Christ than it is now if it did the same, if it joined Jesus and not Simon in its encounter with those who are rightly judged unacceptable. Man, I love that. I love that this is a sermon by an extremely brilliant uh, theologian and philosopher, and I've read his systematic theology, and well, volume one. There's three volumes. I read. I like to say I read it, but I only read volume one, and I took a class on it, and I was with other people reading it, and it is almost impenetrable, you know. And so, what's great about having these sermons by someone who's so brilliant is that you can interact with them. Okay, so this is a brilliant person who shaped faith in the 20th and 21st century, especially Lutherans. Um, Huge influence on Lutherans because he was a Lutheran. But but a very important thinker, a very brilliant man. And he goes, you know, but look at that. The church would be more of a church of Christ than now if it did the same as join Jesus and not Simon, which is the Pharisee, and the encounter with those who are rightly judged unacceptable. So join in the encounter with those who are rightly judged unacceptable. Who do we want to be then? You know, um, when Jesus said, I've come to call sinners, not those who think they're good enough. I had a friend of mine, because uh, I spoke at a lot of uh, affirming, a lot of, uh, a lot of gay affirming churches, because I'm affirming, and a lot of LGBT denominations. And people said, you know, we're just tired of being called sinners. And I got that, you know, I, I got that. But at the same time, I'm like, but 
Do you realize that that's who Jesus constantly said he was there for? That's who Jesus constantly spent his time with? That's who Jesus wanted to be around constantly were those who he called sinners or knew they were sinners or knew they fall short? I'm not saying that being LGBTQ is being a sinner. I'm saying human, human nature, not being aware of our brokenness and our need for being complete. Sometimes that's what the real sin is. But we're all there to a certain extent. So, reconciliation in spite of estrangement. That's what I hope we can give and we can learn to accept. So for some of you today, this talk is, is for yourself. This talk is, I mean, for me, it's right now, it's for me, I need to accept more than I'm accepted. Um, for others of you, it's a transformative thing of going I've got to I've got to take this and, and and live it out in the world so what were we saying what's it called again paradox yes we got I've got to have this pair I've got to live in a paradox now I wish it was easier not to I wish it wasn't a paradox but it is and I'm going to have to take this paradox out and live it. And for others, I'm going to have to take this paradox in and accept it. So I wish it was, I don't wish it was simpler. I'm glad it's like this. I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for the paradox. Because um, I'm grateful for the grace and the mercy because you know what? I, I, I don't have my shit together. And I feel awful sometimes around people who seem like they do. But now when I look at this, I can realize why. It's because maybe they just aren't able, not that they're not good people because it says they're righteous, but maybe they're just because of that righteousness that they're not able to love or accept me the way they need to. Now, if they can realize that maybe that's where they need forgiveness, that's where they need grace, that's where they need a shift. All right, I'm going to pray. Lord, uh, thank you for your mercy and your grace. I thank you for showing us grace in so many different ways and paradoxes and through so many people in different letters and books and poems. Help us to accept that we're accepted and help us to accept that others are accepted. Also, I just pray for all those at Pride today that you would guard their hearts from those who call themselves followers of you and come with hateful signs and hateful words that those would fall on deaf ears and not stay a permanent scar on anyone. In Jesus' name, amen.